We're back in First Timothy, and I'm excited for what we will be learning today. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that your spirit would uh, enliven the words that I have, that they would be your words, and that you would use it to change us and mold us into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So First Timothy, um, if you remember what's going on, so last week we talked about the law and its goodness. The law is good. It is not a bad thing, but it can't bring life, and it doesn't actually kill us. What kills us is our sin, and we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to give us life. And think about what's going on, right? We, we had several sermons, and, and just the verses right before this are, I charge you not to tell certain men not to teach certain things. So why is this in the middle here about the gospel and the law? Well, they were going on and on about all sorts of random things, and they were used in the law unlawfully. And Paul is saying, you have to use the law rightly, and the law has to lead, must lead to the gospel. If, if you do not get to the gospel, you have misused the law. Um, this is the point of everything. Um, but without the law, without the law... There's nothing that the gospel does for us. What I mean is, when Paul talks in Romans 7, he says, The law has made it clear to me that I am coveting beyond all coveting, that he's made coveting clear to me. Um, He means that if you don't have the law of God, you will never be convicted by the Spirit, and you will have no reason to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. That the law is there solely to open up your eyes by the power of the Spirit, to your need for the gospel. And that's what it does continuously for the rest of our lives, that we constantly are turning our our eyes open to the realities of sin in our lives. You see this in several places in Scripture. Um, I'm going to read you from 1 John. This is 1 John chapter 1. Um, But if we walk in the light... As he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's salvation. And then he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So he saves us, and then if we say afterwards, I don't have anything else to repent of, then we have not realized our need for the gospel. But... If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so we have to be very careful that there is a kind of a modern uh, simplification of the scriptures, and it's this this phrase is gospel centrality or gospel centeredness and that's true the gospel is the center it is the fulcrum it is the absolute blazing center as some people have called it of the church of the gospel it is 
Jesus Christ, death, resurrection, and ascension, sitting at the right hand of God the Father for the forgiveness of sins, for the redemption of mankind. But the reality is that the gospel in its nutshell form is played out over 66 books in various ways and for various reasons. And that it does more than simply tell the nutshell. It tells us how we should live, how we should think, how we should act. It gives us instructions on ethics and morality. It lets us know many, many things about life because the gospel cleanses our minds. Right? This is first or this is Romans chapter twelve. The renewing of our minds happens in the gospel. And the renewing of our minds is bigger than just knowing we are a sinner and we need a savior. It's right thinking about everything. And this happens over a lifetime. This doesn't happen in an instant. When we believe, when we are first saved, when we are born again, something happens. We talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school, but three things happened in the fall when we died. We physically died, right? So Adam and Eve, their bodies began to decay, and 900 years later, they died. Actually, I don't know when Eve died, but about 900 years later, Adam died. He lived to be 930. And everyone since then, save two, two men, Enoch and Elijah have died physical deaths, and everyone will. We'll all die physically. We all died spiritually, and that means our, our minds were darkened. We don't know anything rightly at all, period. And that's not just true spiritually. It's not just true that we don't know God. It's that we don't know anything rightly. That's why pagan philosophers... Atheistic scientists, as smart and as good at life and science as they are, don't know it rightly. So a guy like, uh, oh, I just forgot his name. I should have written it down. In the wheelchair, astrophysicist. Stephen Hawkins, atheist, has thought about all kinds of really smart things to do with interdimensionality and all this sort of thing. He's probably right about a whole bunch of things, but he is dead Wrong about the middle of things, which is that God made the universe. His mind has been darkened. He doesn't get it. So we die physically, we die spiritually, which is our mind, and we die um, eternally. We have no longer the hope of fellowship with God. We have instead a hope of death and hell and torment. That's the way we died, okay? Jesus comes to resurrect us in all of those dimensions. He doesn't just save us eternally. That's what we tend to only think of. We tend to think, what did Jesus come to do? He came to save us from death and hell. And so we might include the physical part, that we will someday be resurrected. We always include the eternal part. We are saved from the miseries of hell, the wrath of God. But that third part, the middle part, The renewing of our minds is actually the bulk of what our lives here are about. You see this over and over in Scripture, that this is the will of God for your life, sanctification. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 or 4. This is the will of God for your life, getting more holy, becoming more like Christ, thinking more like God, behaving more like God. That's mind-boggling. But it is the command of God. 
Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament, Be holy, because I am holy. That is still relevant to us. And so what then can be done for us? Nothing. There is only one thing that can be done for us, and it is absolutely out of our power to do it. Nothing in us can do the thing that must be done. And that is the good news of Jesus. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him, verse 12, I'm sorry. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Overflowed to me. That's the nature of grace. Um, Now we're going to deal with a couple of preliminary things before I get into the main message. I'm going to deal with something that is a little bit hard to figure out, I think. Um, So when he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. It almost sounds, because of the way it's phrased in English, that he gets a pass because he was ignorant. Right? He acted ignorantly in unbelief. But the emphasis there is not on ignorance, it's on unbelief, and unbelief and ignorance together. And it's a reference to the idea of the unforgivable sin. Okay? So the unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the idea, and we could get into long debates about how it works and what exactly it looks like. It's the idea that once being enlightened, understanding the actual nature of what it is in the gospel, that to deny that, to say, I despise it, to blaspheme against it, is unforgivable both in this life and the life to come. And we could get into debates about whether or not that's possible or not. We get in all sorts of debates, but what Paul is saying here is, if you are blaspheming the Spirit in ignorance of unbelief, that's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable. Because you have not yet entered into understanding. You're ignorant of the true nature of the gospel. And you see this in Paul. When he was a Jew only, not a Christian... He opposed the gospel, thinking he was on the side of God. And when Christ opened his eyes on the road, he repented, believed, and he was formally a blasphemer, no longer. Now, I just want us to get us into this mindset that this basically is the hope for all people. That the only thing, the only thing that is unforgivable is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every unbeliever, everyone who has never believed the gospel, has absolute 100% hope in the gospel. That's true. We're not going to get into this morning about what that means for us as believers. That's a sermon for a different day. But the gospel is absolutely for everyone who is in ignorance of the gospel, and every sin under heaven can be forgiven. Everything. This is important for us 
because we tend to think some people are not forgivable. And the reason we think they're not forgivable is because we don't actually like them. We don't like the neighbor three doors down who does drugs and leaves his yard unkempt. Therefore, we don't want to ever tell him that there is hope in the gospel. You name it, the people that you despise, and you do, and if you think for more than about two seconds, you could name them probably. You think they are without hope. And the gospel says, not true. Absolutely not true. This is both a condemnation of our own hatred of people in our hearts, but it's also a hope. Because we also know people that seem like no matter what happens, they'll never believe. And there are people that we love. Brothers, sisters, children, parents, friends from youth who we think, there's no way they'll ever repent. There's no way they'll ever see the gospel. And Paul says, I was a blasphemer and an insolent opponent. But thanks be to God, the gospel opened my eyes, and I am no longer those things. And what does he say? I received mercy because they acted ignorant in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. I wish, so, like uh, King James, is super abundance. That's the kind of idea. It's not like this, like, you have a cup full of water and it flows over the edge. It's like the, the, the breaking of the Hoover Dam kind of overflowing. We're talking about an avalanche of grace. This is not soft. This is unbelievable power in the grace of God. And it absolutely can and will save people who are, in our minds, unsavable because we hate them or unsavable because we love them and we can't see how God could possibly do anything for them. And God says to both of those things, Love your neighbor and have hope for those you love. That's the gospel. That is what the law sets up. It says to the ones you hate, you are right. They are wicked. Wicked beyond what you know. A thousand times more depraved than you could ever think And you, too, if you are knowing of yourself, are a thousand times more wicked and depraved than any of us know. The evil thoughts you have had in your life about people and things. If any of us got a snippet of that, we would be appalled. What you thought about your co-worker. What you thought about that man's wife. What What you thought about that wife's husband. What you thought about those kids. What you thought about your neighbor. What you thought about the guy in front of you in the car that just pulled out in front of you, and you instantly were like, that, that stuff, way more depraved than you could hope. You are on the same level, and that's, that is the final message that Paul's going to get into. He, he doesn't say, you are the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners because I am there to be an example that the worst of depravity can be saved. The worst of the worst. Okay? And then this, don't 
lose hope. Don't lose hope. And this is just as hard as that. It is just as hard to love the unlovable sinner next door as it is to have hope for the one you love on earth. They are equally difficult. And the only thing, the only thing that can save that, to, to, to fix that, is the renewing of your minds. To actually believe the gospel you claim to believe. Can it save or can it not? That's the question. And if you believe the gospel, then you should know that it saved you. And you should know of the law what kind of person you once were. Paul was once a blasphemer. But he is now a new creation in Christ. Behold, the new has come, the old has gone. You once were a liar. You once were an adulteress. You once were a thief. You once were, for sure, a blasphemer. None of us loved God. None of us served God. We all despised him until he saved us. We are, in the words of Paul and Romans, enemies until we are made sons. The law is there so that we cannot boast. And you know this intuitively because the people you like to hear give testimonies are the people who are honest about their sins. You, we don't like to hear the guy who says, I grew up in the church, I really never had any big sins, and then I got saved at some point, and I've always been saved, and I never have anything to repent of, and then I got here. That's not interesting because it's not actually true. You have sin, and it was wicked, and God saved you. And if you would tell the truth about your salvation, it would be infinitely more interesting to the people that you love and would be infinitely more effective in telling them the gospel. Because if the people you love, all you kind of ever do is say, yeah, you know, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. But you don't ever actually go, do you, do you know what kind of person I was before Christ? Have I ever told you that? Have I ever told you some of the things I did and thought that I was in my inner being. We know intuitively that that's more captivating for the gospel because the people we like to hear testimonies from are former drug addicts, former alcoholics, murderers from death row. We love that stuff. Why? Because those people are honest about their sins. Not because their sins are so much greater than ours, but because they go, I killed a man. And God saved me. That's a much more intelligent understanding of the gospel than I got saved and now I'm here. You know, I, nothing really to tell in my life. There's nothing blasphemous or scandalous or anything to tell you about me and the gospel. Have faith that God saved you, a wretched sinner. And that your testimony of the wretchedness of your sin being saved by God is actually the power of the gospel. This we don't like to do.
if, if I were to stand up here and tell you the things that I have done in my life, you would be appalled. And hopefully, hopefully after the appalling nature of it, you would go even to him, even to that guy. And so this morning I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, okay? Buckle up. It's pretty un... Like if you, if you gave the Cliff Notes version of my life, it would be, I grew up in a Christian home, got saved, was baptized around 12, became a Christian, was pretty outspoken in high school and college, didn't graduate from college, was engaged for a while, got unengaged, stayed, studied the pastorate, got married, had some kids, became a pastor, wasn't a pastor anymore, studied the pastorate a little bit more, now I'm sitting here preaching in your pulpit. Nothing to tell, nothing, there's no, like who wants to hear that story? That's boring and it does nothing to glorify the gospel of Jesus. It does nothing to tell you that God has actually done things, miraculous things, impossible things, for me personally, just like he did for Paul personally. I was once a blasphemer, insolent opponent, persecutor of the church, but, but, I was shown mercy. So, college comes. I was a terrible student. And I don't mean I got bad grades. I mean, I just didn't go to class. Um, I started out, first semester of college, on the dean's list. I don't know, like a 3.8 out of 4. Like a, an A average. Okay? Started skipping class more and more. Started reading theology because I thought it was more righteous than going to class, which was in and of itself wicked. Because what was really going on was I hated authority, despised it. I did not like anyone, especially some hoity-toity professor telling me to show up and do work. I liked to work. I worked a job in college. I always showed up for my job. Always did my job, always loved my job, but a professor telling me to write a paper, come to class, forget it. And then I became even more self-important and self-righteous. I became reformed, Calvinistic, except for I went way over the top. I said, listen, if God wants me to graduate, I'll graduate. Everything's predestined anyway. And I stopped going to class completely. God, in that, was with me. Just like he was with David in Bathsheba's sin. I have nothing to offer this world. Nothing. I'm not a success. I flunked out of college. I went from a 3.8 to a 0.0 my final semester of college. 1.6 overall GPA. I flunked out. I didn't say it that way for years. I was always like, well, I didn't finish school. Because I don't like to actually say that I did bad things. But the reality is, I wickedly stopped attending college. And the college said, no degree. You did not pass. And do you think that has had any kind of consequences on my life up until now? 36, almost 37 years old? It's had a few consequences. I'm not qualified for anything. I'm overqualified for anything. Right? You write on a resume that you went to four years of college but didn't 
didn't pass. You're overqualified for every entry-level position. You're underqualified for anything that can pay you anything. And so what happened to me? Well, I ran my family's furniture store for a couple of years. And then my uncle came back and wanted the store back so I could quit and couldn't get a job because I didn't have a college degree. And I was 25, 26. So I started driving truck because you can get a truck driving license in two weeks, which... A side note, that's ridiculous, and you shouldn't license a guy to drive an 18-wheel, 80,000-pound vehicle in two weeks. But it's true, it happens. And I began driving, and I began to just sort of break down. And in the midst of that, over the course of those years, many other wicked things happened. I did many other terrible things. And God, in his kindness, in his kindness, didn't let me fall. And he very well could have. At any moment, I was hanging by a hair's thread. One of the most important scriptures in my entire life is this. It's from Luke 22. It's when Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. The night he's about to be betrayed. And he turns to Peter, Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold. Satan has demanded that he they have you, that he might sift you like wheat. He's talking about the fact that Peter's about to deny him three times. And you think, okay, Jesus knows it's going to happen, and he tells Peter it's going to happen. And then this is how Jesus ends it. He says he's demanded that he might sift you like wheat. But behold, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen the brothers. What is the gospel? After you're saved, after the initial I do, the commitment, the acknowledgement, the hope, the born-againness, what happens after that? Jesus, in the words of Hebrews and in the words of Luke, prays for you. He intercedes for you. The Spirit, in Romans 8, intercedes for you with groanings beyond words. Your only hope now as a believer is the word and work of Jesus. That's it. And it was my only hope. Because I was on the, I mean, I was on the precipice of everything awful. That's the hope of the gospel. I don't deserve anything. And I don't just mean I don't deserve my wife and my kids. I don't deserve, you know, the house and car. I mean life, anything. And it is only God's kind mercy that he didn't just let me go. Instead, just like he did with Simon, he said, Behold, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that is true for every one of us. Christ himself intercedes for you. And he intercedes for you day to day, day after day. And at the times where your faith is this thin, unseeable to the the naked eye, we don't even think it's alive. If you're his, he prays for you. And your faith will not fail. That's the gospel. 
And the reason that kind of thing is more real than the first way I told my story is because you can see that I am actually in need of something beyond anything I could do. I am in need of actual forgiveness, actual salvation, actual renewal of my mind. I actually need it. Because without it, I am an utter, total, complete failure of a sinner. That's our testimony if we're Christians. Don't be afraid of it. Don't think that that is not the real thing. Don't think that that is the thing you have to hide. That is the only real thing. Is that truth about you? So in all of this, I want us to think about ourselves individually. Find where you were, what you still are in many ways. And give God glory for his mercy. Do not run so quickly to the realities of the cross that you make light of everything it did personally for you. The characters we love in scripture are the ones that are the most messed up. This is um, Hebrews Right, chapter 11, it's commonly called the Hall of Faith. I'm going to just read a few things. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, not knowing. Abraham was not a perfect man. He received grace. He was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah herself conceived. Think about Sarah. What happened when the Lord came and said, next year you'll have a son? And she laughed. And then he said, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't, I didn't laugh. He said, but you did laugh. But still, next year you will have a child. And then what does she name her son? Isaac, you know what Isaac is? Laughter. <laughs> she knew it. She knew that her testimony in Scripture would always be, I doubted and laughed, but God kindly, kindly gave it to me anyway. And so why wouldn't I remember it by naming my kid the sin that I committed before the Lord? Because he was still good to me. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, by faith, Moses... Moses, at 40, thinks, I'm the guy who's going to do it. Read the account that Stephen tells in Acts chapter 7. I'm the Savior. I'm the guy. This is how I'm going to do it. You guys, this Egyptian's overbearing over you? Kill him. Bury him in the sand. It does not work. It's not good. And then, during his time dealing with unbelievably grumbly people for 40 years, at one point gets so angry that he disobeys the command of God and instead of speaking to the rock, strikes the rock. And because of his sin, is not allowed entrance to the promised land. Who would we be like to be more like than Moses? He was the most humble man that ever walked the earth. 
we should want to be like Moses. Not because he sinned, but because he was a sinner who received mercy. Unbelievable, right? So by faith, Moses. Um, What more shall I say? This is Hebrews 11. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak. You know who Barak is? Barak's story is told in Judges 4 through 6, and you more commonly know it as the story of Deborah, the judge. Because Deborah says to Barak, Barak, rise up and fight the people. And he's like, nah, you do it. And she's like, listen, if I do it, we will get the victory, but a woman will get the glory, and it will be a shame to you. We're told that Barak is with God. He is in the hall of faith. He received mercy, even though he utterly failed as a commander and leader of God's people. Utterly failed. Didn't do it. David. I mean, do we need to go into detail about about Bathsheba and Uriah, the man he had killed and then had his wife and then his firstborn died and then split the kingdom because of his sin and Absalom tried to kill him and then he had to kill his own son and all this stuff? With God. Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended for their, through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. All those who we read about who received mercy through faith didn't ever get to actually know the fulfillment of Christ. How much better for us to exult in the mercy of God to us sinners from birth, from conception, who did and do terrible things that dishonor the king. And he still says to us, you are mine. You are my child. Come to me. I will give you rest. Call me dad, Abba, father. Do not neglect the realities that the law displays. It displays your wickedness so that the glory of Christ might shine all the brighter against it. This is the overflowing, right? This is the dam breaking the superabundance of grace that comes. It doesn't look like a dam breaking if you just say, you know, I was a sinner. And then get Jesus saved me. That looks like a creek bed that overflowed his banks a little bit instead of a gushing river that destroyed the land and became all things new. Right? Have you ever seen the destruction that water can do? There's this video from probably five years ago up in Wisconsin, and there was all this rain that rained and rained and rained and rained. And it was a man, it was a lake, 
but it was a man-made lake. They, you know, mounded up dirt, you know, for I don't know how thick it was. And then it broke. And an entire lake drained in about three minutes. And it wiped the earth bare. Swallowed up hundreds-year-old trees. Just gone. Wiped out over. That is the gospel of grace. It wipes us clean. And it does so in an avalanche. Make it so that it actually looks like an avalanche in your life. Don't downplay your sin. It makes the gospel look weak. Don't downplay the law. It makes the gospel look weak. If you want people to believe that they actually need something, name your sins. Proclaim the gospel that Jesus saved you from them. And maybe, just maybe, you will see that the one you love God opens their eyes. And they go, you were that bad? I'm that bad. I thought you were good. But it turns out you're bad. Well, now I don't, now I get it. Like, I thought you were good, but now I know you're bad. I'm bad. Grace! And then it'll help you love the person next to you. And if you think I'm talking about a hypothetical guy down the street who probably does drugs and his yard is unkempt, Come to my house sometime and look kitty corner from me. I'm talking about real people that it's difficult for me to love. These are real people. And those guys, those guys are just as much able to be saved as anyone else. There is no difference. That's the gospel. That's grace. We obtain it through faith, and so believe it this morning. Trust God. We have the good news. Believe it. Let's sing. Well, I'm going to pray, and then let's sing that God would be our help, that he would not leave us alone in this. Why don't you stand as I pray? Father, thank you for...